The Senate impeachment trial against former US President Donald Trump enters its third day. We'll have the latest from Washington for you. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau bets big on public transport as his government's plans to build Canada's economy post-pandemic continues. And Berlin becomes the first city in Germany to give pedestrians rather than cars the right of way. Monocle's correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 11th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to discuss some of the day's top news stories from around the world are Monocle 24's Carlotta Rubello and Henry Rees Sheridan. Henry, Carlotta, great to have you both with us on the programme today. How is the week treating you both so far? Carlotta, a brand new episode of The Urbanist premiered here on Monocle 24 a couple of hours ago. Maybe you can give us a sneak peek of what's on the show this week. You know, Tom, this week is actually something that I haven't said in, I guess, over a year now, which is a report from a conference. Can you believe it? Of course, uh, it was a virtual conference with all the social distancing included. Uh, But yes, we covered the Urban Land Institute's Europe conference, uh, which, you know, at uh, first glance, it looks like a conference focusing mostly, you know, on real estate and how developers uh, can help shape our cities. But actually, it's not just about that. Um, we spoke to, for example, Pierre Francesco Maran, who's the deputy mayor for urbanism for the city of Milan, um, all about the progress they've been making over the past year. Uh, Milan was one of the cities that used lockdown to kind of change um, the way uh, it is structured in terms of the roads. They up- upgraded the uh, bike infrastructure, the pedestrian areas. Um, But he also explained how despite all of that and all that mobility incentive, other big projects that they had been planning for the past few years continue to kind of tickle along in the background, including a new, you know, urban vertical forest. We know the Bosco Verticale, the amazing high-rise building that basically has an urban forest coming out of it. There's a second one planned and work has started for that. But also this idea of re- purposing seven abandoned railway stations um, to kind of connect outer areas of the city, um, turn them all into public spaces, increase connectivity on them too, so that, you know, this, the uh, uh, fringes of the city are not as disconnected of the centre. So quite interesting stuff. Look forward to giving that a listen, Carlotta. And Henry Sheridan. it's about this time each week that you give us an update on your furniture assembly adventures of the week gone by. Do you have any updates for us this week, Henry? Funnily enough, I was actually just uh, hammering uh, the cross beam of the folding IKEA chair that I'm sitting on back into the hole that it's intended to go in. But that's not even the most exciting hardware headline, actually, this week. I've also got a uh, professional-grade uh, hair trimmer in, having used my beard trimmer for a long time to shave my head. So uh, it's a big upgrade, actually, Thomas. Efficient, powerful, uh, consistent very much like you, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Rubello. Both great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today in Washington, D.C., where the impeachment trial against former President Donald Trump has entered its third day in the U.S. Senate. Yesterday, senators were shown graphic CCTV footage of the attack on the Capitol building on the 6th of January by the Democrats' impeachment managers, some of which, some of that footage, had never been broadcast before, and it showed just how close some of the rioters got to figures such as then-Vice President Mike Pence, the Republican Senator Mitt Romney, 
and the most senior Democratic figure in the Senate, Chuck Schumer. While monitoring today's proceedings for us from Midori House in London is Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermack, and he joins us now. Uh, Chris, great to have you with us. Uh, What have been the key lines of argument put forward during the proceedings today so far? Well, Thomas, for those who listened to my update on this show yesterday, I talked about this sort of dual-pronged approach uh, by the House impeachment managers, you know, on the one hand, focusing on Donald Trump's own words and actions uh, in the run-up to the uh, January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and on the other hand, on the actions of his supporters and the rioters who, uh, you know, took place in that attack And today really started uh, with more of this focus on the latter. House impeachment managers brought up a series of videos, quotes, and testimony from Trump supporters and rioters, both before, during, and after uh, the January 6th insurrection uh, of the Capitol, and really trying to make clear in that sense that supporters believed that they were acting under Donald Trump's instruction. And, you know, in focusing on the supporters, when you talk about what their argument was today, they really tried to link also this rhetoric specifically on the November presidential election being fraudulent and how this basically left Donald Trump's supporters with no choice but to do what they did. You know, the point being that even though there was no real evidence of fraud in that election, that, you know, dozens of court cases had rejected any evidence that was brought uh, by Trump's lawyers. And, you know, all political avenues had also been exhausted. Donald Trump uh, was still saying that this election was fraudulent. And so this essentially left Trump's supporters feeling like they had really no other choice but to storm the Capitol and literally stop the certification of Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. In addition to that, I'd just say they they also, after that, started pivoting uh, a bit to really after January 6th and the the sort of longer-lasting consequences to democracy in the United States, if you will, and the fact that, you know, it could have been much worse. They highlighted FBI reports of, you know, uh, plans for insurrections uh, in state capitals across the United States in the run-up to the inauguration, the fact that that prompted National Guard deployments. And in that sense, you know, I think part of the the argument uh, has also been that, you know, the the inauguration may have gone off without a hitch. Uh, Donald Trump left office, but that's in part because of what had to be set up as a result of January 6th. As one of the impeachment managers said, the U.S. Capitol has become a fortress, as have state capitals across the country. Constituents no longer have access to their legislatures because they fear that, uh, as, they, as they said, President Trump's mob stands ready for more attacks. So in that sense, it's also undermining this the openness of democracy. And that was really part of the message that uh, House impeachment managers were, were providing to really to try and sort of bring home this idea that you do have to hold Donald Trump to account for his actions to his uh, for his efforts to overturn this election 
because otherwise, you know, this is something that is going to continue, that there are going to continue to be uh, efforts to overturn the election. And for that matter, they also focused on uh, FBI reports that this has been a boon for recruitment efforts of domestic extremist groups, that they have gotten more members as a result of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And so this in a, this impeachment in that sense is really an effort to prevent those seeds being planted from bearing more fruit. It has to be a wake-up call uh, for everybody. So that's really what, what today is about. Um, there will be more going on over the day. House Democrats uh, will be wrapping up uh, their case today uh, for impeachment. Tomorrow it will be the turn of Donald Trump's lawyers, the defendants, if you will, to make their case. And, uh, you know, they've, they've come in for some criticism, particularly on Tuesday, uh, for a rather erratic approach to um, to the defense of Donald Trump. So it will be interesting to see uh, what they come up with tomorrow, what their strategy of attack will be. There will be a lot of focus, of course, on free speech, uh, political speech, and the fact that Donald Trump had a right to say what he said and, and kind of trying to break this link, if you will, between Donald Trump and the, the rioters uh, that were at the Capitol on January 6th. So I'll offer an update uh, tomorrow as well, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what kind of impact they have. Chris Chermak, Monocle's news editor. Thank you very much indeed. Well, in Canada yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the latest plank in his government's plan to rebuild the country's economy in the years following the coronavirus pandemic by vowing to invest nearly 50 billion Canadian dollars in public transport infrastructure over the next eight years. Part of that funding will be released as soon as this year, but the notable part of the proposal is the establishment of a permanent public transportation fund that will begin allocating money for public transport transport projects across the country from 2026. Here is some of what Prime Minister Trudeau said yesterday to the media about why overhauling public transport spending across the country was a priority. This is about uh, shaving time off of your commute so you can spend more time with your family. Uh, it's about uh, making sure you have opportunities and options when you're looking for a home that will also be able to get you to your job uh, in an affordable way. These are the things that make a huge difference in the lives of people right across the country. And that's why we're so happy to step up in such a big way to make sure our future is on the right track. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there speaking to the press from his residence in Ottawa yesterday. Carlotta, Justin Trudeau was asked why public transport, particularly transit in Canada's cities, was now a priority for him, particularly given that many people in Canada's cities, as elsewhere, have in some cases opted to move out of the city uh, during the events of the past year. We heard part of his response to that there, but what do you make of the proposal? And does it do a enough, do you think, to recognise perhaps where public transport is required, that that might indeed change, I suppose, when society gets back to some semblance of normality uh, in the in the years to come? Well, Tom, I am um, a believer that despite, you know, this sort of exodus we're seeing at the moment of, from our cities, of people moving away from cities uh, into less urban areas due to the pandemic, that that is just, you know, a symptom of now. Uh, cities will remain these, you know, uh, bubbly, uh, inspiring and inviting places. We'll always have people uh, moving to cities. And I think uh, once this is all over, either we'll see some of the people that have left 
come back or we'll see a whole other generation trying to move to big cities. So the the idea that uh, we might need to rethink transit uh, to because cities won't be as busy, uh, I think is a fake um, narrative or a fake hypothesis in that sense. Uh, but I think from what the announcement from the announcement that Trudeau made, this idea of the permanent transit fund for me is the most interesting uh, on twofold. The first one, because obviously with um, coronavirus and the lockdowns and everything that's going on with the pandemic, um, public transit ridership uh, declined in almost every single city, Toronto being, of course, one of them. And that is the way that most transit systems get their money, is through riders, through people paying their fares or their annual monthly passes. So having a permanent transit fund ensures that if something happens where ridership decreases, um, we are able, uh, cities are able to have that fund to go to. But it also, on a second aspect of it, is that it allows for... Uh, local transit authorities to actually go ahead with a lot of their plans. What tends to happen is, you know, we need to, they depend on budget, they depend sometimes on investor money, and having at least some part of the funds guaranteed might allow them to be a bit more bold with, um, for example, expansion plans or renewing a fleet of trams or metro uh, carriages, um, hiring more staff. You know, if you have a chunk of the money that is guaranteed to you, um, then you can put forward bigger proposals rather than thinking, okay, I have this very limited budget. What can I do within that when sometimes just a tiny bit more would make such a big difference? Um, It is quite amazing to see this uh, I think it's fair to call it a trend uh, that is happening with a lot of leaders, uh, both at a local level and um, like uh, like Justin Trudeau at a national level, of this idea of transport and focusing on transport and mobility and the way people get around um, is a conversation that um, we uh, are used to here at the local level, but hearing it now um, as a priority um, is really inspiring. You know, people need to have alternatives and how they get around. Um, of course, climate change remains uh, the biggest challenge for our society and for our urban environment for the next couple of decades. And this is one way of starting to change mentalities too, because if we if we start, you know, uh, creating a society where not owning a car and riding public transport is actually the norm. Um, We're seeing, you know, future generations um, that won't know otherwise. And they might look back to us and think, what do you mean a family had four cars? Why? And that's actually quite a nice place to be. Um, So it's uh, amazing news. uh, And I'm quite excited to see with this mammoth amount of money, with this this huge, huge uh, budget that's being allocated, allocated for the initiative, uh, what's going to happen? And Henry, to shift focus to where you are in the United States, President Joe Biden's big pledge during his campaign for the White House was to, and I quote, build back better and transportation and infrastructure more broadly formed a fairly significant part of that vision. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, the former presidential candidate himself, the new transportation secretary, what do we know about what he's laying out so far for transport infrastructure and the investment in it during these four years now of the Biden administration? Buttigieg has uh, a really kind of uh, a big opportunity to make an outsized dent 
in US transport infrastructure uh, because of this uh, uh, massive uh, injection of, of funds which have been taken out of a, of a coronavirus relief package intended to help the country's struggling public transportation systems. Uh, I, I'd better mention the numbers, even though they're so big, they're almost kind of abstract. So the coronavirus relief package is going to be $1.9 trillion. 20 billion of those are going towards the, uh, the public transport uh, systems. Um, the, the three measures uh, that he highlighted uh, in his confirmation conference uh, is that he's going to try to uh, realise a goal set by Mr Biden of creating 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations, uh, electric vehicles obviously being a, a kind of huge sector of growth in, in, in progressive transportation technology, uh, and one which, which looks to have a bright future in America, which is a very kind of car-oriented society. Um, on a more kind of wonky, I suppose, level, He's also, uh, he also says that he's going to look to reform uh, a fund called the Highway Trust Fund, uh, which is uh, uh, funded by uh, basically excise taxes uh, on, on, on fuel uh, and supports the building of, of road infrastructure. Uh, he suggested uh, possibly funding this through a tax based on the miles people drive. Rather than the uh, rather than the the fuel they consume, um, but this is going to be tricky. Uh, the fund has faced solvency issues in recent years and has needed to be injected with general funds aside from the the, the excise tax uh, funds that it normally relies on. Um, away from 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 those kind of uh, uh, more kind of consumer level uh, reforms, uh, something that Butchier mentioned to senators. Uh, was that he wants to improve the way the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, regulates airplane technology. Um, obviously, this is off the back of the uh, debacle around the Boeing 737 MAX, uh, uh, which, which, which suffered two uh, fatal crashes uh, and, and was pulled off runways by, by uh, aviation authorities and airlines around the world. Uh, the responsibility seems to fall with uh, uh, partly with Boeing, partly with the FAA, and, and Budgie is going to be uh, uh, very keen uh, to to erase the stain on on the federal administration, aviation aviation administration, excuse me, his reputation that that's left. Well, finally, here on the late edition, we're staying with cities because Berlin has become the first city in Germany to implement a pedestrian law. Uh, Carlotta, as the producer of The Urbanist here on Monocle 24, perhaps we'll start with you and perhaps you can set the scene for us here. What does this law do and how does it sort of tip the balance from cars and motorised traffic to foot traffic in Berlin? And why has it been put into, into place? Well, like uh, many cities and many countries around the world, if not the vast majority, uh, Berlin and Germany uh, as a whole are, you know, places where uh, the car uh, is dominant. I mean, we're talking about the country where there's no speed limit in the motorway. So that tells you something. Um, but this is, you know, this new mobility law, um, it's part of something that, you know, urban planners, mobility experts have been discussing for years, uh, which is the idea that you need to put pedestrians first rather than cars, um, because at the end of the day, not only because of vulnerability in the sense that a pedestrian is not protected by anything, whereas you as a driver inside a car are 
protected by your vehicle, um, but also in terms of usability in the city and overall quality of life. Now, this is an amendment to a mobility law from 2018, which the state parliament in Berlin had passed back then, which largely just improved, you know, some traffic and safety conditions, mainly for cyclists with introduction of new bike lanes as well um, and uh, bike-specific um, uh, traffic signaling. Um, but now this new amendment basically shifts the focus from car first to pedestrian first. We're talking about, you know, green lights that are on for longer for pedestrians, uh, dedicated and safer school routes for children, um, an increase in the number of crosswalks, um, even goes to the detail of adding um, more benches for people who need to rest, be it that the elderly or moms carrying, you know, a, a pram or anyone who needs to rest uh, during their commute. And more importantly, it lowers the curbs in most of the city so that they, wa they are more wheelchair accessible. These are just some of the things included here on this pedestrian-first approach that might seem minimal, but when applied to the whole city, make a big difference, you know, and really signal that uh, it is the pedestrian that needs to come first. It's a combination of small things that, again, goes to the point of the conversation we were just having about the shift in mentality and the way people get around uh, in our cities. And it kind of ties in as well, um, this aspect with who we were just discussing, Pete Buttigieg, because one of the things that Berlin is aiming for is to have zero traffic deaths. Um, and actually, Buttigieg was the only uh, Democratic candidate during the primaries when talking about mobility and urbanism that pledged to um, end uh, traffic violence in the United States. Um, and this is, of course, a, a huge thing. Um, you know, going back to Berlin, um, numbers from last year say that almost three quarters of Berlin's um, recorded traffic deaths, which were 50, were pedestrians or cyclists. Um, so laws like this really will make a difference. And Carlotta, you say that the laws will make a difference, but I suppose any change in law takes time to sort of bed into our usage of a, of a city, if I can put it that way. How has this been received in Berlin? And do you think that the sort of changes this law is obviously seeking to bring about, how, how quickly will we see those changes in reality in the way Berlin as a city functions, both for pedestrians and for, for car drivers too? Of course, there will be some resistance. There's always resistance to change, be that positive change that everyone's looking forward to or not. Now, there are things that will actually have an immediate effect. The increase of timing on, tra on a green light for pedestrians, there's nothing um, uh, motorists that car drivers can do other than wait at the red light, you know? That is something that will immediately have a, an effect as soon as as uh, uh, as it comes into place. Uh, actual construction work about lowering the curves, that will make um, someone who's a wheelchair user, their life immediately improved from the day that construction work is done. So everything else, of course, is cultural. And as you said correctly, there is resistance and there will be for any sort of change. But these small things that all add up, that show that will have an immediate effect altogether... Um, shows that the city will be going in a, a, a right way. And again, it's all about trying to change the mentality um, of people, trying to re-educate people about who actually, let's say this with inverted commas, of course, owns uh, the road. N no one does, but we 
have a mentality nowadays that the car does and that the car has priority. And that is not the case. Um, uh, I mean, when we're all taking our driving license tests, we learn that that's not the case. But uh, car drivers, uh, really, we uh, behave that way uh, because that's how cities have been planned with the car in mind. And it's time to sh- change that and to actually reflect the reality. And Henry, when I first moved to Toronto um, a little while ago, I remember walking with sort of new friends who were born and raised in the city and looking on pretty horrified as they'd sort of just step into the road from the sidewalk at a junction um, without sort of really looking at what was coming. Uh, the sort of identity of the city there is the pedestrian, I think it's fair to say, has the right of way already. And that definitely seemed to me at least to sort of been embedded in the way that people traverse the city on foot, not everywhere, of course, but in, in many neighbourhoods across the city. In New York, where you're speaking to us from today, who has the, the right of way there? Is it cars or, or people? Well, I think your last question to Carlotta, which touched on the question of culture, uh, is really germane uh, to this question. Uh, because I think that obviously the, the formal written laws provide for uh, various rights of ways in various different circumstances. But on the ground uh, in New York, pedestrians, cyclists and drivers are locked in a pretty kind of aggressive and hostile war of attrition uh, for for ownership over the road. Um, all three categories of road user and sidewalk user uh, pretty flagrantly flout uh, the rules that are in place. Uh, To be honest with you, probably pedestrians and cyclists more often or more egregiously because enforcement isn't quite as tight uh, uh, when it comes to, you know, stuff like cyclists running reds. Uh, But but motorists are pretty bad too. Um, And yeah, it does seem to me that Well, from having been in various cities around the world, North America and Europe mainly, uh, it does seem to, people's behaviour on the road does seem to come down uh, much more to to culture and and kind of social, collective social psychology and philosophy than it does uh, what the rules are. I I mean, the article that you sent over... um, one of the articles that I read about the, the change in law in Berlin qualified that uh, as a kind of trade-off for getting uh, more rights when it comes uh, uh, to, 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 to cars on the road, cyclists and pedestrians are going to have to put up with uh, more stringent enforcement of rules against parking bikes and riding bikes on sidewalks and pavements, whatever you want to call them, which if you've ever been to Berlin, you know, is just it, it's just kind of taken for granted as being part of the culture. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a shock to the system, not only to drivers, but for cyclists and pedestrians, you know, when they start getting tickets placed on their bikes, which happened to me once uh, in, in The Hague in the Netherlands. I, I was riding a, a rental bike and it got ticketed because I parked it in in some zone it wasn't meant to be parked in uh and and the 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 cycle ticket enforcer was very nice and explained to me the situation but you know there's there's a massive amount of cognitive dissonance caused if you're unfamiliar with these rules uh and yeah it's it's an interesting sphere of of human behavior in in an urban environment um i think that it it's 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 going to meet some kind of organic street level resistance and i just hope it doesn't cause uh too much tension before it gets uh, kind of internalised by the population. 
And did you pay your fine, Henry, or are you still a wanted man in the Netherlands? My understanding is that I was I was let off the fine. Uh, I, I kind of uh, made myself uh, as pathetic as possible, which wasn't difficult, and managed to elicit the pity of uh, this otherwise quite officious looking uh, uh, cycle enforcement, cycle traffic enforcement officer. But I've not been back since, Thomas, and I could be in uh, for a nasty surprise next time I fly into Schiphol Airport. I was about to ask you that. Maybe next time you land there, you'll discover that actually you have a, a fine and some fees <laughs> due. Could find myself in the DMZ at the airport. Fingers crossed that doesn't happen. Well, Henry Reese Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, a fine pair to go for a little wander, a stroll, a cycle, if you will, metaphorically at least, through the day's news here on the late edition. A big thanks to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all for today's edition of the programme. A big thanks too to Louis Allen at Midori House in London, who edited today's programme. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow, but do be sure to join the global globalist team tomorrow to round off another week that begins live from london at 7 a.m london time i'm thomas lewis thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow (laughs) 